And he says, So flee youthful passions and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace, along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. Have nothing to do with foolish, ignorant controversies. You know that they breed quarrels. And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to the knowledge of the truth, and they may come to their senses and escape the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. Let's pray. Father, we come before you this morning and I pray that as we look specifically at this chapter of this letter to Timothy, God, that we would see the importance of sound doctrine, the importance of knowing the truth, of knowing you, and the importance of being able to discern true teaching up against false teaching. That we would be able to discern true godliness as opposed to a counterfeit godliness. God, I pray that you be glorified and magnified through your word this morning. Through the fellowship of the saints this morning. God, I pray that our worship would be pleasing and acceptable in your sight. I pray that your spirit would minister to us as your word is, is preached and taught and read. God, we pray that you would... Sanctify us in the truth, and your word is truth. God, I pray that you would draw us closer to yourself and give us a greater knowledge and understanding of who you are, and a greater knowledge and understanding of truth this morning. I pray that we are humbled, that we even have this opportunity to meet and to gather, and that you would receive the glory in the fact that you have granted salvation brought us together as brothers and sisters in Christ through the blood of the cross. God, may all praise and honor and glory be to you. And we ask this in Jesus name. Amen. So chapter two ends with Paul explaining to Timothy, hey, you're going to have to correct some of your opponents. I mean, that's that's right there. But he says, correct them with gentleness that perhaps if you have if you have the KJV there, there's some obviously I don't preach out of the KJV. I love the KJV, but there there are some words that I always say I wish we still used in today's modern vernacular. In the KJV that says, correct your opponents with gentleness that per adventure, (laughs) per adventure, God would grant them repentance. So perhaps that God would grant them repentance and that they would be, that they would come to their senses after being, it literally says, after being captured by the devil to do his will. So false teaching and false teachers, it's nothing to play around with. It's nothing to, it's nothing to be overly Overly gracious with, really, when it comes to false teaching and false teachers, those who are spreading the false doctrine, they are to be corrected. They are to be addressed. Now, you correct them in gentleness, but how does Paul view this whole issue of false doctrine going out among the people? He tells Timothy, you correct them with gentleness that perhaps God would grant them repentance. Okay, so it is wrong. It's something that needs to be repented of. And then Paul even goes as far as saying, and that they would come to their senses, escaping the fact that, that they were captured by the devil to do his will. False doctrine does not come from God. It does not come from the word. Therefore, it does not honor God. Therefore, it ought not be tolerated by Christians. Okay? So, we've just read that. Paul tells Timothy, perhaps... Perhaps God will grant them repentance and they will come to their senses and they will return to the faith. But then we have this. And if you've, if you've been a Christian or in church for any length of time, I would venture to say that you've probably already heard at least one sermon in your lifetime on these verses. I can remember being young and, uh, and hearing preachers preach on these verses that, you know, in the last days, in the last days, this is coming. And we, we hear preachers continue to talk about this uh, even today because it does... 
to our human minds and our human experience, we look out, we, we, we tend to think, well, it's getting worse and worse. And so you hear, you hear preachers pull these verses out and use them and say, well, we're in the last days, we're in the last days, and here's what it's going to look like. And that's very true. But I find it very interesting that Paul was already telling Timothy about this in biblical times. And that's significant because the last days started when Christ ascended. When Christ ascended, and He's now at the right hand of the Father, but when He ascended, that inaugurated, that started, that kicked off the last days. The time between the ascension and the second coming, these are the last days. Timothy was already in the last days. And Paul tells him, understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty. Now that's what every preacher and pastor wants to hear, right? You know, let's say I get a let's say I get a phone call from Rick Brown, somebody we all know. I'm a younger pastor. He's been in ministry a lot longer than I have. And he says, Caleb, I just want to give you some encouragement. I want to give you some advice. It's going to be very, very hard. It's going to be very, very difficult. We think, oh, well, that doesn't, that's not very encouraging. That's not very uplifting. You know, ministry is supposed to be this great, wonderful thing. You know, you're a, you're a servant of the king. You get to tell people about Jesus. You get to share the gospel with people. You get to teach the word of God to people. Well, there's a difficulty that comes along with that because people hate the truth. Right? So Paul tells Timothy, listen, it's going to be difficult. In the last days, there will come times of difficulty. Four, people will be lovers of self. Lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents. This is just a comment for what it's worth. I I believe that same comment is also in Romans 1. And it always just kind of boggles my mind that in the midst of all of these things that we would say, oh yeah, that's to be a lover of self, to be a lover of money, to be arrogant, to be abusive, to be boastful. Oh, those things are just wicked, wicked, wicked. Disobedient to parents. Ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable. So never satisfied. Slanderous. Can't control their tongue. Always slandering people. Without self-control. Brutal. Not loving good. Treacherous. Reckless. Swollen with conceit. Lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. Now, at first blush, and when we first look at that, those characteristics of people that Paul is describing... You might be tempted to think, oh, those people sound like the worst of the worst, right? Those people sound like they are so far from God. They are so irreligious. They are so ungodly that, that you know, Paul here, he must be talking about just the, the, the most wicked type of people that would never even darken the church doors. No. Having the appearance of godliness. But denying its power. He's talking about people who would claim to be very religious. Who would claim to be very godly. He's describing people who are putting on a show, if you will. They're part of the right crowds. They pro- In today's context, they're probably regular church attenders. Claiming to be... Christians, but they are lovers of self, lovers of money, they're arrogant, they're treacherous, they're slanderous, they don't love good, they don't love God, they love themselves, but they appear godly, they appear godly, so Paul's not saying these people are just going to be so obvious to you, you're going to know, you know, I wouldn't touch those people with a 10 foot pole, so to speak. No, this is, they have an appearance of godliness, but they deny its power. So let's pause there. What does, what is, what are some signs of the true power of genuine godliness? Well, let's just work our way back up that list and look at the, look at the opposite of these characteristics. Okay. They're lovers of, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. Okay, well, true godliness would lead somebody to be a lover of God rather than a lover of pleasures. So you can just reverse that. You can flip that. Swollen with conceit. Okay, well, 
Swollen with conceit is that fake godliness. Genuine godliness is humbling. It brings you low. It doesn't swell you up with conceit. It makes you understand, I did not deserve the mercy and grace of God. Yet it was bestowed to me because God is gracious. So that doesn't make me boastful. That humbles me because I realize I deserve death, but I have received life. Reckless, treacherous, not loving good. Okay, So true godliness would be Christians, true Christians would be lovers of what is good. We would have self-control. We wouldn't be reckless. We wouldn't just do whatever we wanted to do. But we would be obedient as children of God. And we would love what is good. Brutal. Without self-control. So that's false godliness. True godliness obviously lends itself towards what? Self-control. Kindness, gentleness, not brutality. Unappeasable. That's one that, now this is just me, I'm not saying this one has to stand out to you, but unappeasable stands out to me for this reason. Unappeasable carries with it the connotation of never being satisfied. Never being content. But what are we told in Scripture? Godliness with contentment is great gain. Christians are those who are to be content. Why? We have everything. You say, well, you could have more money in the bank. Well, you could have a bigger house. Well, you could have this. Who cares about that stuff? We have Christ. What more could we need? Unappeasable. Slanderous. Always seeking to tear, tear people down with their words. Always, You could say, you know, seeking to spread a rumor. Seeking to spread doubt concerning the brethren. Slanderous. Oh, you know, I heard this. Let me, let me tell you what I heard. Let me tell you, let me tell you about this. Or he, always trying to tear down. Slanderous. Reckless. Unappeasable. Heartless. Unholy. Ungrateful. You know, it's a sign of genuine faith that, you're, that, that you just be a grateful person. That you're thankful. That you're able to rejoice in all circumstances. That's a sign of true faith. If we walk around and we are ungrateful or we are malcontents or we grumble or we complain about stuff, that is not keeping in step with the gospel. Arrogant, abusive, proud, lovers of money, lovers of self. False godliness. So what does genuine godliness, godliness look like? We love God and we love others. We don't love ourselves. We're not, we're not seeking to do things in our lives for self-gratification or self-promotion. We are lovers of God. We are lovers of others. And we certainly aren't in it for the money. That ought to go without saying. But yet one of the most prominent false teachings of today is what? That if you are keeping in step with God, if you are living a godly life, He will bless you financially. He will bless you materially. You will find that teaching nowhere in Scripture. Nowhere. In fact, Christ, it's recorded for us in here. Christ is recorded as saying, foxes have holes, birds have their nests. The Son of Man has no place to lay His head. If you wish to follow me, count the cost. Count the cost. What is the cost? Die to self. Pick up your cross and follow me. Back in the days of crucifixions, if a person were to pick up their cross, it was a one-way trip. It was not round trip. You went to the place of your death and you died there. Someone else took your cross down. The cost of following Jesus is death. You must die to self. You cannot simultaneously be a lover of self and die to self. That shit won't sell. That dog won't hunt. Right? Seems fairly straightforward. And so again, I say, at first blush, we would read through that list of characteristics and we would say, oh man, Paul is talking about some no good rotten scoundrels. And he is. 
But these no good rotten scoundrels were probably showing up to church, calling themselves a part of the body of Christ, but yet they were completely given over to false teaching, false doctrine, and they were still lovers of self, lovers of money, abusive, slanderous. Can you imagine, can you imagine the disruption or the disunity or the pain that that would cause the true body of Christ to have this People with these characteristics coming into the fold and saying, we are just like you. We are Christians as well. Can you imagine the disruption and the disunity that that would breed? And so Paul here is telling Timothy, look out for these people. But he doesn't just say look out for them. He says, avoid such people. Do not tolerate their behavior. That doesn't mean take them to the edge of town and stone them. That doesn't mean that you slander them and you tear them down. But what it means is this. Do not tolerate that teaching and that doctrine within the body of Christ. Because it breeds disruption, it breeds disunity. And it is not true godliness. It is empty. It is fake. It is phony. Avoid such people, for among them are those who creep into households and capture weak women, burdened with sins, and led astray by various passions, always learning and never able to arrive at a knowledge of the truth. Now, we live in 2021, so I have to make this comment. I wish that I didn't. Paul here is not saying that women are weak. Okay? Paul here is not bashing women. He's giving a characteristic. Of the false teachers. What do these false teachers do? They prey on people who are weak. Not physically weak. Not mentally weak. You could say spiritually weak. They prey on them. False teachers need people to listen to them. Right? Yeah. Or else they wouldn't have a platform. So they prey on people who are weak spiritually. They prey on people. He says they're burdened down with sin. They understand I'm a sinner. And that's a burden on my back. How can I get rid of this burden? Well, in comes the false teacher saying, let me help you with that burden. Let me teach you something. Let me share something with you. But it's all, we're in the South, so I can say this. It's hogwash, right? It's baloney. You know, you might as well pull out the white bread and make a sandwich because that's baloney. You can't do that. So, But they come in and they prey on these weak, Paul says women, prey on them. As if to devour them. Elsewhere in scripture we know that we have an enemy that seeks to devour. Right? So what do people who preach false doctrine. Which is the doctrine of demons. What do people who preach those doctrines. What do they seek to do? Devour people. They prey on those who are weak spiritually. And they lead them astray. They're burdened down with sin. And led astray by various Passion. So there you have it. They're burdened down with sin, but they're led astray by their own passion. Lovers of self, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. And so these false teachers come in and they say, hey, let me share this knowledge with you. Let me share this teaching with you. Then it says that they're always learning, but never able to arrive at a knowledge of the truth. There is something wonderful. There is something comforting. There is something very restful to the soul when we really come to understand and believe that God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Amen? Do you know what that means pertaining His Word? If God is the same yesterday, today, and forever, and He has given us His Word, He's not dropping off new revelation to people. His Word ain't going to change. So, whenever, if you ever hear a preacher say, hey, let me teach you something new. You, you probably need to really put your listening ears on. If you hear a preacher say, you know, let me tell you something that they didn't understand in the past. You really need to put your listening ears on. God's truth doesn't change. Once a Christian arrives at the knowledge of the truth, their theology and their doctrine should not be ever changing. You know, well, two years ago I thought this, but now I think this. 
Or a year ago, I thought this, and then somebody... I, I used to never listen to this guy, but I started listening to his preaching, and he said some stuff I'd never heard before. Well, there's your first red flag. If it's sound doctrine, you've probably heard it before. Right? What did the apostles teach? What Christ taught. What do those who follow the apostles teach? What the apostles taught. What did the early church fathers teach? What the apostles taught and what Christ taught. What are preachers nowadays called to preach? The Word of God. So when you hear people say, well, I, I've never heard that before. Now, there comes a time if you're growing in your walk with Christ and you're studying the Bible and you're really digging in for the first time. Yes, obviously you're going to come across some stuff that you've never really seen before. But when you hear preachers or when you hear people who call themselves modern day prophets or modern day apostles. That's another sermon for another time. There are no new prophets. There are no new apostles. But when you hear people say, I got a revelation from the Lord. Or I, I heard a word from the Lord. If it doesn't mesh with scripture, they might have been hearing from a spirit, but it wasn't the spirit of God. Always learning, never arriving at a knowledge of the truth. A Christian can say, God has spoken. There's nothing new to learn. There's nothing new to learn. So weak women led by their own passions that they were always learning. They're, oh, well, there's this new thing. Oh, well, there's this new thing. Now I learned this. I learned this. It's like, but do you know what the truth is? Well, no. I just really like learning new stuff. Well, that's not good. The Word of God is unchanging. There's no new doctrine being brought up. God has spoken. It's here. I'm going to go ahead and jump to the end of the chapter real quick. I'm going to read verse 17 already. That the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. That's in reference to the Scripture. So if Scripture is able to equip us for every good work, we don't need to be learning any other doctrine or theology that's outside of Scripture. What do we need to be learning? The Scripture. So, who do false teachers prey on? Those who are weak in the faith. Those Paul here again, he said, the, the weak women that are led astray by, by various passions. And they're always learning, but they're never, never able to arrive at the truth. That's how they spread their false teachings. And then these people who are imbibing this false teaching, these people who are listening to this false teaching, they might go to a, a worship service or a fellowship with the other saints and say, hey, um... This teacher, he's never come here, but but this teacher that I met the other day, he shared something with me, and it, it was really fascinating. It was really exciting, and I want to tell all of y'all about it. Well, now the true saints are being exposed to this false doctrine and this false teaching, and it, what's it doing? Causing disruption, causing disunity, and it's spreading. Just as Janus and Jambres opposed Moses, so these men also opposed the truth. So you say, okay, Caleb, I think I'm... We're following. We're, we're, we're right there with you. These people, look, these people look like Christians closely. They have an appearance of godliness, but it's not true godliness. But, but you know, how, how difficult is it to distinguish false doctrine and sound doctrine? How difficult is it to distinguish true teachers of God and, and false prophets of God? You know, how, how difficult is that? Okay, Paul gives us an illustration here. When Moses... Told Pharaoh, let my people go. And, Mo and, and Pharaoh didn't do it. Uh, there were these signs that God had given to Moses. And the first few of them, even, even the first few plagues, the magicians of Egypt were able to copy and mimic what was done. Right? Moses' staff turns into a snake. It says that the magicians, by their dark magic or their dark arts, they, they were able to mimic that. The Nile, the water to blood, they were able to, to mimic that. An appearance of godliness. Oh, that's the power of God. No, it's not. It's an appearance of godliness, but it denies the power. What is the true power of God? Only the power of God could cause a lover of self to become a lover of God. Only the power of God could cause somebody who is arrogant and proud and boastful to become humble. And consider others more than they consider themselves. Only true godliness can take someone who loves their sin. And transform them into someone who loves good. 
and pursues godliness. That's the true power of God. So just as Janus and Jambres opposed Moses, so these men also opposed the truth. Men corrupted in mind and disqualified regarding the faith. Say, how, how seriously should we take this false doctrine stuff and this false teaching stuff? Consider that false teachers, men who pray on those who are weak in the faith, Paul says they are corrupted in mind and disqualified regarding the faith. You know what that means? They are not your brother. They are not your sister in the faith. They're disqualified regarding the faith. They are outside the family of faith. How seriously should we take it? Very seriously. But they will not get very far for their folly will be plain to all as was that of those two men. Now, if you say, all right, I'm, I'm following, I'm reading here what Paul wrote. And on the one hand, he says, obviously a lot of people are being led astray because he's having to warn Timothy about it. So how is it that their, their folly will be plain to all? Well, if their folly is plain to everybody or plain to all, then why is it that so many people are getting carried away with it? The folly of false teaching will be plain to those who have arrived at a knowledge of truth. Who do have eyes to see and ears to hear. Those that truly belong to God. Those that have been transformed by the power of God and have a true form of godliness. They will be the ones to look and say, well, it's obvious that this is phony. This is a gimmick. They're just faking it. They're, they're just like Janice and Jambres. They don't actually have the power of God. It's all just a show. But it will be plain to all as, as was that of those two men. So you have a false godliness, a false Christianity, if you will. Now Paul says this. You, Timothy, however, have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness. My persecutions and sufferings that happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium, and at Lystra. So, now Paul is doing a little contrasting. Right? He says, okay, your false teachers, those who are following the false teachers, here's their characteristics. Here's what they look like. Avoid them. They are disqualified regarding the faith. Now, Timothy, let me remind you what truth looks like. Not just preaching and teaching truth. But Timothy, you know me to be an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ. And of course, Timothy would say, of course, Paul. We, we know that you are an apostle of Christ. And so Paul is saying, now Timothy, you compare what they teach and what they say and the lives that they live. You compare that with my conduct, my teaching, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, and my persecutions and sufferings. I hope that every single one of us here this morning would strongly agree Paul was certainly an apostle of Jesus Christ. And in being an apostle of Jesus Christ, Paul certainly lived a godly life. We'll go one step further. Not only did he live a godly life, we would say wholeheartedly, Paul lived a life that was pleasing to God. Paul had God's favor on his life. Paul had God's blessing on his life. Which leads us to say, okay, what does the life that Paul lived look like? Someone who was called of Christ to be an apostle. So, someone who surely had the blessing of God on their life. Someone who surely had the favor of God on their life. What did it look like? Well, just briefly, Antioch, Iconium, Lystra. At Antioch, they, the Jewish people began to revile and, and pushed back against Paul. And they had him run out of town. That sounds lovely, doesn't it? Have any of you ever been run out of a town? Because the people couldn't stand you? Let, we live in a day and age where everybody wants to... And I'm not, I'm not trying to be funny. I'm, I'm being sincere. This, this really is the day and age in which we live. Everybody wants to talk about their feelings. And if somebody doesn't feel safe... That's really considered a crime nowadays... Okay, so consider, 
You're in a town and you're preaching, you're sharing the gospel, you're, you're, you're speaking the truth. And people get so angry with you that they start to revile you, they start to curse you, and they run you out of town. And all you were doing was talking and teaching. How would that make you feel? How would you feel to know that everybody in that town, basically... Now, there were some people who believed... But the leaders in that town, they all hated you. They all wanted you dead. We cannot live our Christian lives based upon how we feel. We live our Christians lives, Christian lives based upon what is true. And what is true is that those who stand for God and stand for truth are going to suffer. Now that doesn't mean, and I want to, I want to be clear on this. Because there are people who can take what I just said, it is true, but they can take it too far. Meaning, they can live their lives where they're just, they're trying to tick people off. You know, they just have this devil may care attitude. That's not the life of a Christian. But the life of the Christian is this. We stand for truth and we know that a byproduct, a natural byproduct of standing for the truth is we are going to have some backlash. We are going to have some persecution. That's it's part and parcel of the whole deal. That's what happened to Antioch. At Iconium, they plotted to have Paul stoned. But it, they... He was driven out to the next town, Lystra. And at Lystra, Paul was stoned. So, reviled and run out of town. They planned on stoning him. They did stone him. Boy, that sounds like your best life now, doesn't it? Doesn't that sound wonderful? Hey, you should follow Christ. Well, what are some of the perks of following Christ? Oh, well, I mean... The world hated him, so if you really follow Christ, the world's probably going to hate you too. Oh, that doesn't sound like anything I want to sign up for. But how, how do we get around that in our modern context? Hey, follow Jesus, He'll make your life better. Follow Jesus, He'll make you happier than you've ever been. Which is true. But how do people perceive that? How does, how does the non-believing world perceive that? Well, here's the, here this Christian is telling me, you know... I have bad days. I get sad sometimes. I, I, I feel beat up about myself sometimes. I've made some bad decisions in my life. Now this Christian is telling me that if I follow Jesus, He'll just make everything better and my life will be happy. Sign me up. Do you know what that is? Lover of self. Why did you start following Jesus? Well, because I just wanted my life to be better. So you started serving Jesus because of what you could get out of it? That means you worship yourself. Why did you start following Jesus? Well, I didn't want to go to hell when I died. So you, you started worshiping Jesus just because, just because you didn't want to go to hell. Like you didn't want to get hot when you died. So you, you got saved based upon what you could get out of it. So you worship yourself. You worship your own comfort. Jesus Christ is not a get out of hell free card. Why do we worship Jesus? Because He's Lord and He is worthy of worship. That's it. We don't worship Him because of what we get out of it. We worship Him because He is who He is. And He's worthy of the praise. And we, we have faith that Jesus really is Lord. Now, you say, Caleb, surely you're not saying that it's, you know, that none of those things matter. Of course it matters. Jesus Himself said, all who believe in Me will never perish. So you're not going to hell. You have eternal life. That is a wonderful product of salvation. I'm not downplaying that, but what I'm saying is this. We don't worship Jesus just so we don't have to go to hell. We've missed, we've missed the boat. We don't worship Jesus just because the nice stuff we get. Well, I, I just really want to see them streets of gold, you know. I just, oh man, I'm excited to see them streets of gold. The prize of heaven is Christ Himself. Forget the streets of gold. I want to see Jesus. Right? We've got... I mean, it, it, I understand. You say, well, that, that kind of seems like a fine line. That It is. There has to be a certain level of discernment there. We don't follow Christ based upon what we get out of the deal. It is truth. It simply is a truth. All who repent and believe will be saved. 
But what are we believing? When somebody repents and believes, what are they believing? That Jesus is Lord. That when He died upon the cross, He purchased the salvation of all who believe. And when He ascended, He ascended with a promise. I'm coming back. And when He comes back, He's not coming back as Savior. He's coming back as Judge. So that all who do not believe are condemned already. And what is their condemnation? When they return, they will be judged for their sin. This is what Christians believe. Do we get heaven? Absolutely. And praise God for it. Does God give us a peace that passes all understanding through Christ? Absolutely. And praise God for it. Do we... Do we rejoice even now, even though we're not in heaven already? Do we rejoice now with joy unspeakable and full of glory? Absolutely. Because we have come to know the truth. Those are all byproducts. But what was it that brought us to our knees and caused us to repent of our sin? It was coming under the realization that I am not my own God. Jesus is Lord. And I must repent of my sin because I'm guilty. That was what brought us to our knees in repentance and faith. Understanding that He is Lord. He is Lord. And the only way to not be condemned before a holy God is to profess Jesus is Lord. So, those are His persecutions. And then Paul says, Yet from them all the Lord rescued me. Indeed, indeed. Which is basically to say, you can bank on it. Indeed, Timothy. All who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. While evil people and imposters, imposters, form of godliness, denying its power. While evil people and imposters go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed. Knowing from whom you learned it and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, with the scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. All scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Timothy. Do you want to know how to be prepared to fight these false teachings? Do you want to know how to be equipped for every good work that God has called you to? Be a man of the Word. Study to show yourself approved. And it, as if Timothy may ask a question. Okay, Paul. Equipped for every good work. I'm supposed to, to fight off these false teachings. Correct them with gentleness. Praying that God would bring them to repentance. But, but not tolerating it, avoiding such people, and knowing that it is Scripture that makes us equipped for every good work. And it's as if Timothy says, but what do I tell the people? What do, what do the people need? We're going to bleed over just a little bit into chapter 4. I charge you, Timothy, in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and, and by His appearing in His kingdom, preach the Word. What do the people of God need? The Word. They don't need the latest, greatest trend or the latest, greatest church growth scheme. They don't need the latest whatever. We need the Word. The Word. And we talked about that Wednesday night a little bit. That That's such a boring answer, right? You get somebody that comes to you and says, hey, I want to grow. I'm ready. I want to get involved. I want to start. I want to start serving. I want to I want to start growing in the faith. What do I need to do? Read the Bible. That's such a boring answer. Right? Uh, read. I don't like to read. How many of you just being honest, how many of you just naturally you're not really drawn to reading? Right. It's that's a that's a boring answer. I did. I did very poorly in school. You know, you're you're looking at a high school dropout here and I barely scraped through college. All right. Well, I was not born a reader. Guess what? If somebody is really serious about growing in their faith and they are told, study the Word, if they're actually serious about growing in the faith and growing in godliness, they're not going to say, oh, you got anything else? I'm not much of a reader. They're going to say, well, I'm not much of a reader, but if studying the Word is how I'm going to grow in the faith, I'm going to start reading I'm going to dive in. And by God's grace, 
Maybe I will become somebody who enjoys reading. If nothing else, I will at least enjoy reading God's Word. Preach the Word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. Now, in today's modern Christian culture, you would think that the pastors are told to encourage, encourage, encourage. You know, encourage, make them feel good, bless them. And that's, listen, there's absolutely, you should have a pastor that is encouraging, that does uplift and everything. But it is actually also part of pastoring to reprove, to correct, and to exhort. How many of us, well, actually, I'll just do it this way. I have been this Christian many, many times where I was the one who needed to be corrected. And if God didn't put people in my life to come along and basically say, Caleb, you're being a dummy then I'd probably still be repeating those same bad habits that are not Christian habits, right? There needs to be some reproof and some correction and some exhortation. And by the way, that's actually a sign that you do love people, right? If you have a child that you know for, you know for a fact they are doing something that is hurting them, but at that moment they're enjoying it, but you know that if they continue doing that thing that they're enjoying for a moment... They're, they're going to hurt themselves or they're going to harm themselves in some way, shape, or form. What do you tell them? Well, well, I just love you so much. You just keep having a good time. Enjoy yourself. No. You say, stop. And the child says, why? Why do I have to stop doing this? What are you trying to tell me? And we're human, so we can't, we can't reason perfectly. We can't explain things perfectly. But a lot of times parents will tell their children, you might not really understand what I'm telling you right now, but you, trust me. Trust me, you are harming yourself. You're hurting yourself. What you are doing, if you continue doing it, you're going to end up hurt. And if a parent tells that to their child, we wouldn't say, they hate their children. How dare they hurt their child's feelings? How many of you are guilty you've ever hurt your child's feeling? Okay, you were telling me earlier that you had to spank them a time or two. I'm sure that probably hurt their feelings. That one over there? Did it hurt your feelings? There you go. Okay, but we wouldn't look and say, you hurt your child's feeling. That means you hate your child. No, we would say any parent that actually loves their child is going to explain to them when they're doing something wrong. Correct. So why is it that in Christianity, if a brother or sister in Christ comes up to you and says, hey, this is wrong. The most common reaction we have is, well, that was rude. I can't believe that the preacher would actually preach something that convicted people. That's rude. That is, we don't want a mean preacher. Well, if you don't want a mean preacher, then you probably need to find one that doesn't preach the truth. Because here's the thing. Truth is going to convict people. Why? Because we're not perfect. The only person that would never be convicted from teaching and preaching is the person who was already perfect. Right? Because there's nothing to be convicted over. We're human. Even as Christians, we're human. The flesh and the spirit are at war. Therefore, there's going to be things that we read in Scripture. There's going to be things that people preach from Scripture that we're going to have to say, ouch. Vody Balkan, one of my favorite, one of my favorite uh, preachers that's alive today, he always, he, he peppers his sermons sometimes and he'll say, if you can't say amen, you ought to say ouch. Right? And that, as a Christian, there are things that preachers preach that you just want to jump and shout for joy and you want to say, Amen. But there's some things that preachers preach that you've got to say, yeah, that hurts. Because I'm guilty. I need to repent. And that is a good thing. Listen, if God did not love you, He'd never convict you. Do we understand that? Conviction is a gift. What if God had never sent the prophet Nathan to David. To say. You're the man. You're the one guilty. David wasn't repentant over his sin. David wasn't confessing his faults to God. David was just continuing on and continuing on. But God sent Nathan to David to say. You're the man. And David was so broken that he actually penned Psalm 51. Which is one of the most beautiful psalms in all of scripture. And it's a psalm of repentance. God breaks the ones that He loves. If God, those that the wrath of God rests upon them, 
that God has turned their face on them, they don't feel brokenness over sin. They're able to continue to go on in their sin and God does not convict them. Conviction is not something to run from. Conviction is something that ought to cause us to to run to Christ and cling to Him ever more tightly and say, thank you God that you love me. Thank you for not allowing me to live in my sin. Thank you. But that would never come if men of God weren't called to reprove and correct and exhort. If the man of God was called just to say, hey guys, all y'all are doing good just because you're here in church this morning. You know, y'all, y'all are just so great, there's nothing y'all need to even work on. I mean, y'all are just, y'all are just awesome. Y'all are the best group of people I've ever been around in my life. God just loves you so much. Woo! Let's close in prayer and I'll send y'all home. That doesn't accomplish anything except to encourage the people in their deception. Because people will actually start to believe that. Well, the preacher tells me every Sunday how great I am. I must be pretty great. I don't really have anything to repent of. I don't really have anything to work on. How do you know that? Well, oh, brother, you ought to just come to our church. When we come to church, oh, we leave we leave feeling blessed and re-energized and it's awesome and it's great. We just love our preacher and everything. But the reason that they love the preacher so much is because he never brings up the Bible. He never preaches the truth. There's no conviction. There's no substance. Listen, if I really wanted y'all to like me a lot, it, rubbing elbows with people and saying the right things to get people to like you really isn't all that hard. Now, I'm pretty socially awkward, so it's a little bit more awkward for me. But there's a lot of people that they're just good. They're just naturally, they, they have the gift of gab. They're able to rub shoulders with people and just get along with everybody. It's really not that hard to do. You want to know what's hard to do? Not just for preachers, for Christians in general. You want to know what's difficult? To speak the truth. To receive kickback. To have people tell you, I don't like what you said. And then continue to speak the truth. That's difficult. That's hard. And I'm not saying that for my sake. I'm saying that for y'all's sake. When you go to work, even in your own homes, you may have, you may have a spouse or a child or another family member that when you speak the truth... They get upset with you. It is hard to find the resolve to say, I'm going to continue to speak the truth. I'm going to continue to speak the truth. Preach the word, reprove, rebuke, exhort. The time is coming when people will not endure sound doctrine, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions, and they will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. I'll close with that. There is truth and everything else is a myth. That kind of simplifies things, doesn't it? It's either the biblical truth or it's a myth. How many truths are there? One truth. God's Word is truth. Therefore, if it is something that is not supported with God's Word, it's not founded in God's Word, it's a myth. What's amazing is what he said, though. They will accumulate for themselves teachers having itching ears. You know what that means? There is never going to be a shortage of false teachers. Why? Because the people who are just pretending and they have a form of godliness, but they deny its power, they are able to accumulate, which means they have many. They're able to accumulate them. Hey, this one will tell us what we want. This one will tell us what we want. This one will tell us what. And they accumulate for themselves teachers having itching ears. There's never going to be a shortage Of false teachers. What there may very well be a shortage of. Are preachers and pastors who preach nothing but the word of God. What there may very well be a shortage of. Are believers who want nothing more and nothing less than the word of God. So I know that there were many things in this sermon that were heavy, that were that were they weren't pointed, but they were direct. So what does this mean for all of us? What can we how can we take some encouragement from this? If you want to know Christ, study the word. If you're a believer and you want to grow in your faith, you want to know Christ more. Study the word. Seek him in prayer and meditation. 
if at any point in this sermon or even right now you're thinking to yourself, you know, he's up here talking about the importance of sound doctrine and false doctrine, and I'm just, I really just don't even know if I'm, I'm, I'm saved. I'm really struggling with all that. If you wish to know who Christ truly is, study the Word. Everything you need to know about Christ, the Savior, the only mediator between God and man, everything that we have recorded about Him and the significance of His existence is in the Word. Scripture is able to make one wise unto salvation. If you have questions, all I can tell you to do is ask them. The, the worst response we could get from another Christian is simply, I don't know, I'll have to go study that one myself. And now there's two Christians studying instead of just one. That's a good thing too. <clears throat> may we consider the importance of truth this morning. And may we all ask ourselves, regardless of what you claim or don't claim to be, let us ask ourselves this very, very simple question. Do I care to know the truth? And have I submitted to the truth? So two questions. Forgive me, I said one. Two questions. Do I care to know the truth? If you say, yes, I want to know the truth. Secondly, have you submitted to the truth? That Christ is Lord and we are to live by all things that He has commanded and we are to share all things whatsoever He has commanded. Have we submitted to these truths? So, regardless of your position or your spiritual state, there is much for all of us to, to chew on and think about. And as is the case, whenever the Word is presented, there are always decisions that the people are called to make. There are always questions that the, that the people are called to answer. And so I pray that by God's grace and through His Spirit, that we would be drawn to the correct answers. That we would be drawn to submission and in some cases drawn to salvation in Christ. And that God would continue to purify and sanctify His people through His Word. Let's pray. Father, we thank You once again today for this time that we've had together. God, we praise You for Paul's letters to Timothy. <clears throat> God, we praise You that there is so much to, to, to know and to learn and, and to to consider as believers as we read his exhortations and his encouragements to Timothy. God, I pray for those that are believers here this morning that, God, you, were, you would turn our hearts even more so towards you and towards your word, that we would have a greater love and a greater zeal to know you through your word. And not only to believe it, but to walk by it. And to share that truth with others. For those who are lost this morning. God I pray that your spirit. Would open their eyes. That they may see the truth. That Jesus is indeed Lord. And God that they would be broken over their sin. And that they would submit. To his lordship. And acknowledge that he is savior. He is Lord. And he is our only hope. God, we thank you for Christ our Savior. We thank you for your great gift of salvation. We pray that you would be magnified and glorified in all things, Lord. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.